There are so many other things happening where it isn't Big Brother, it isn't centrally controlled. It's just a person videoing someone else or it's some loose ad hoc group of people that have decided that they're going to surveil something. It's so much more decentralized and so much more peer-to-peer than that idea of Big Brother. That's a very industrial era way of looking at things. I think it's a very poor analogy for what we live in. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about the public's desire to surveil one another. In the socio-dystopian novel 1984, author George Orwell introduced us to the character and idea of Big Brother, a shadowy, unknowable, yet ever-present figure, uh, presented as a man in his 40s, whose image is plastered everywhere, onto television screens, billboards, posters, and consistently paired with the words, Big Brother is watching you. Big Brother is never verified in the novel to be a real man in his 40s, or a person at all, but Big Brother is real in the novel as representative of an extraordinarily powerful surveillance state which constantly watches the movements of its citizens. Since the novel was published more than 70 years ago, the term Big Brother has been used to describe various types of mass surveillance of the public, often by a government. Uh, The NSA's post-9-11 communications surveillance of Americans' online activity and phone call records, that's Big Brother. Uh, The GCHQ's program from 2008 in the EU that secretly took a snapshot of 1.8 million Yahoo users' webcam chats every five minutes, That's real, by the way, and that is also Big Brother. The name of a popular, still-running CBS reality TV show where users are constantly filmed as though under surveillance. That's Big Brother. But today's episode is about a more recent phenomenon. Little Brother. As far back as 2010, in a piece titled Little Brother is Watching, author Walter Kern wrote for the New York Times, quote, As the internet proves every day, it isn't some stern and monolithic big brother that we have to reckon with as we go about our daily lives. It's a vast cohort of prankish little brothers equipped with devices that Orwell, writing 60 years ago, never dreamed of, and who are loyal to no organized authority. The invasion of privacy, of others' privacy, but also our own as we turn our lenses on ourselves in the quest for attention by any means, has been democratized. End quote. Little Brother is us recording someone else on our phones and then posting it on social media. Little Brother is us years ago Facebook stalking someone because they're a college crush. Little Brother is us watching a ring webcam of a delivery driver, including when they are mishandling a package, yes, but also when they are doing a stupid little dance that we requested so we could put it online and get little dopamine hits from the likes. Little Brother is our anxieties being soothed by watching the shiny blue GPS dots that represent our husbands and our wives driving back from work. 
And if some of those characterizations upset you because you do them, and well, you wouldn't characterize your own actions as surveillance, you should know that you're not alone. And that's actually part of the problem. A little brother isn't just surveillance. It is increasingly popular, normalized, and accessible surveillance. According to recent research from Malwarebytes, members of Generation Z both digitally and physically monitor their spouses and significant others more than the members of all other generations. Non-consensually, Gen Z tracks locations more, reads messages like emails, texts, and DMs more, and installs monitoring applications on their romantic partner's devices more than non-Gen Z. And Gen Z also has higher rates of non-consensually reading through a diary or journal of their romantic partner, reading a personal letter addressed to or from that person, and even searching through that person's room, backpack, car, purse, or other personal belonging. And 49%, almost half of Gen Z agreed or strongly agreed with the statement, quote, being able to track my spouse's slash significant other's location when they are away is extremely important to me, end quote. That 49% is 10 points higher than non-Gen Z. Today, because I hate surveillance, I am making my colleagues talk to me about it. <laughs> to help us understand the growing appeal of little brother type surveillance and the appeal, if at all, of privacy as an antidote to that surveillance. We're speaking again with my colleagues, security evangelist Mark Stockley and editor-in-chief Anna Brady. Mark, Anna, welcome back to the show. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having us back on. Yeah, happy to have you back on. Thank you for coming on today to talk about my favorite topic. I feel like this episode's <laughs> just going to be me screaming at the two of you for an hour. So <laughs> as long as, Perfect. you know, you could just like, you could record this at a separate time. You know, like how, how modern movies are, they don't even get the actors in the same room anymore. It's all just done with green screen. We could do the exact same thing. But <laughs> thank you for coming on today. I wanted to just start exactly there with this idea of little brother being appealing. And I think it's appealing is the word that I use to reconcile the fact that it is extremely popular and nothing seems to stop it and that there are more forms of it and people choose to do it. So I want to open it up there and just ask you actually, what do you both think is the appeal of little brother surveillance to people? It's convenience, isn't it? I suppose part of it is convenience. Like, if you want to, in the olden days, uh, or for me, because I don't track my partner, if you wanted to know when they were coming home, you'd have to speak to them on the phone, or you would just have to wait and hope that they would come back in time for whatever you were going to do next. But these days, you can track them. You don't need to worry because you know you can find out when they're going to be back. I actually, so I don't track my partner at all because I don't really feel the need to. And also, he works from home, so I would know where he is. <laughs> Bit useless. <laughs> I, don't, I, it's, I don't know how accurate the tracking is, but I could probably tell how long it's going to be to come, for him to come from his office to the uh, kitchen or whatever. Anyway, <laughs> but we did use it the you, other day you had because the moral I had to... high ground, and then, <laughs> and then you left the moral high ground. <laughs> but I, I am the tracking of my partner because I can see him. <laughs> Because I don't need to, because he reports to me at all times. Um, 
<laughs> no, but we did use, I did use the tracking the other day it, because I had to pick him up from somewhere. He dropped his car off at the garage to be fixed and I had to pick him up and he was walking towards me and I said, just turn on your tracking and then I'll drive to where you are and we can meet because it was about half an hour gap. Ah. That was useful. That was appealing to me, you see. Yeah. That was handy. I don't feel the need to track him at all times. But in terms of just tracking in general, I know it's it's a much more broad tr- topic than that, but I can also see why it's appealing to track your teenage kids or your, I don't know when people start tracking their kids. I've got much younger ones. I sort of know where they are at all times, but I can see why someone would want to track their kids when you're just slightly letting them fly away a little bit. Uh, Mark, what are your thoughts? Because you've got slightly older kids. Would you track them? I don't. They have tracking. In a, so you said, when does the tracking start? The tracking starts about like three seconds after they get phones. Um, <laughs> I don't track them. The tracking is enabled on their phones. And I see that as a safety backup in an emergency if they were uncontactable for some reason. I might use it. Like the only time I've ever used it actually was when one of my children decided to leave their phone in a public park mm. and <laughs> came home, burst through the door and said... I've left my phone in the park. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, well, let me check the tracking app. And to be fair, it took us to exactly the right corner of the park and we found it there lying on the grass. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what it's like having teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm I'm against tracking them generally. Like I don't make a a routine of it and I, I don't have any kind of parental controls that give me a report about what they're doing they know about and those reports exist only in situations where I have no choice so some services won't let you use them um, unless you sign up for these things but yeah I'm kind of with David on this like I I don't actually I it's very difficult for me to explain what the appeal is because I don't understand it at all I actually go the other way in that I think that people should have the option to be private by default and shouldn't expect to be monitored and tracked. And I think as regards children, which is the situation I think about most often, it's important that they actually have moments where they don't feel like they're being watched over and that they are accountable to themselves. They can't always feel like there is a fallback. They have to experience what it feels like to be, right, I'm on my own in this situation and I can handle it. You know, it's important to try and develop their self-confidence. And and part of that is just letting them deal with situations on their own, I think. I think on the the appeal, I think there's like a big, a lot of shifts happening. But I think like the most interesting thing that I could think of is that there's a overall loss of trust. We kind of talked about this in the AI episode and how that's going to ramp up this societal loss in trust. But I think the little brother surveillance is trying to, I don't think it's trying to. I think people believe that it is filling the gaps of a loss in trust. And so, Anna, you were telling me that when you went to the first music festival with your children, that Mm. other parents were telling you that actually, like, something you can do is, like, you can give your kids wristbands and put, like, your phone number on it. And that way, if your kids get lost, like, someone will, it sounds a lot like the way we treat dogs (laughs) and cats. (laughs) (laughs) Which should well, be noted. Not dogs. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
but but there is a lot of trust inherent in that system working right like you have to trust that the stranger who finds that your kid encounters is going to be like oh this is a crisis like i have to call this person's mom or dad and i think that putting like an air tag on that kid gets rid of that entire equation right like that entire like Mm. dialogue that has to happen where you trust someone you've never met before to do the right thing that is just like canceled out entirely and that way you can just monitor it yourself and i think a lot of people have had a loss in trust just because like news is scary and there's a lot of statistics like it doesn't matter what you say about how kidnapping, and I spoke to someone in a recent episode about this, that that kidnapping is frequently done by people that the child knows. It doesn't matter how often you say that stuff, like that doesn't overcome anxieties. And I think that kind of thing is like leading again, like it's, there's a loss of trust and this is filling that gap. This is filling that. And so actually that, that reporter I spoke to, Heather Kelly for the Washington Post about tracking kids, she spoke with a woman named uh, Lenore Skenazi, and she's like the founder of this organization called Free Range Kids, and they're all about like letting kids roam free. And she had this wonderful quote that I just wanted to put out because I think it speaks to a lot of other things. She said, quote, if your parents trust and believe in you, that is an incredible gift. With tracking devices, mm. there's no way to prove you're trustworthy. We can't tolerate uncertainty and tech keeps giving us more certainty what happens when trust is replaced by certainty end quote and that's what i feel is happening i think that's the appeal of little brother i think we don't know how to trust people anymore you see things like stalkerware right which is not just little brother surveillance but also like abusive and it's called stalkerware um and it's so wild that these things are advertised as quote-unquote solutions to like your partner Mm -hmm. cheating on you like oh you can't trust your partner so this tool will help you find that out and I've also spoken to people who are like, that's so crazy. Like, (laughs) how is this a solution to your partner cheating on you? Like, once you find out your partner's (laughs) cheating on you, they're still cheating on you. (laughs) There's there's core problems, you know, that StockAware isn't going to solve. Even if they're not doing that, like, they were going to, but they didn't because I was tracking them. Like, that's the worst reason. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh, I, ca- I caught them ahead I of time. But I would have been found out, so I decided not <laughs> so to. Decided like, not to. Mm, mm. And I think that's what's happening. We see this, again, this loss of trust. And then I also think, in a really kind of rapid fire way here, right, everything is measured now, just everything, and our mm. jobs are measured. And every single week, like, I think an increasing number of people have to say, like, this is what I did this week. Like, aren't I doing a good job? And, like, look at these dashboards. And, like, let me send these reports. And we have now almost equivocated data with like moral good. And because like we have to keep doing it. And so we live in the society where we're getting more numbers than we ever did before. We're using those numbers to prop up our own productivity or our worth or our value at our jobs. And so then we just kind of, again, we make this subconscious association with like data is good. And then these tools give us data that didn't it didn't exist really before. Like we didn't, we couldn't look at everyone's letters. And even if we could, there's Mm. way more letters now. That's it, you know? And we couldn't look at everyone's location and now we can. And we couldn't 
like fitness tracking blows me away. Like fitness tracking is the craziest thing to me that like people post like I ran this route and I like burned this many calories and I had this heartbeat, you know, or like sleep tracking. Holy, what yeah. the, like, why are you grading your sleep, man? Just like sleep, <laughs> like be comfortable sleeping. I don't understand it. Everything is graded. Oh my God. Those are my, that's, that's, so there's a lot of things. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Actually, on the fitness tracking, the other day, I didn't wear my watch, my smartwatch. And I went on a quite a long walk. And I was like, oh, I haven't, I haven't worn my watch. Yeah. And I, I had to check didn't myself because yeah. I thought, I still did it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still exercising. Like, even if I forget it when I'm like on my exercise bike, like I'm still doing it. It's just that I haven't tracked it. But it just ruins my numbers for the day. I mean, it's just, you, you yeah. got home and your watch was tutting at you. So you haven't done your 10,000 steps. You're like, yes. I have. I've literally <laughs> just got in How from doing 10,000 steps. Exactly. I think that's a, that's a really, really great example of <laughs> the difference between what actually happens and what gets measured. David, you were, you were talking about, you know, people getting surveilled in their jobs now. Yeah, yeah. And I, I yeah, it makes my skin crawl. Because I've spent lots and lots of my career dealing with web analytics, which is not a million miles away from other forms of analytics. Like, you know, there's a lot of sort of cross-domain knowledge. And, uh, you know, the stuff that gets measured is the stuff that you can measure. Yeah. (laughs) Not necessarily the stuff that is important. And that happens across, that happens everywhere. Some things are very hard to measure. Even if they're important, if they're hard to measure, they don't get measured. And then everybody ends up focusing on the metrics that can be measured. And that has that can have really, really strong uh, negative effects. Like you were talking about certainty. Yeah. And the idea that, you know, digital tracking, tracking my children would give me some sort of certainty. Well, it gives me an idea about where they are, but I have not a doubt in my mind <laughs> that if one of my children wanted to go dark, they would find a way to do it. You yeah. know, they would give their phone to a friend or, you know, children are notorious for finding ways to pull the wool over their parents' eyes. So I think the idea that the technology brings with it certainty is itself, I think that's a dangerous idea. I'm sure that that is true. I'm sure that's true in a lot of people's minds, but I think that that's a very dangerous idea that somehow we're increasing the certainty with all this extra technology. Right. But don't you think with with the kid tracking in particular, people do it mainly for safety like what you were saying David about the like kidnapping like the risk of something like that and so I guess in some people I mean I I haven't really thought this through yet about what I'm going to do because I'm not there yet but um if you've got tracking turned on for your child I guess it's more likely there's a slight possibility that it could help you in some way to find them if something happens. I'm not a kidnapper and I've never kidnapped anyone <laughs> and I have no plans good. to. All right, Mark good. uses this but as I, his alibi I, 10 years from now. Yeah, sure. No, no, no. You see, <laughs> yeah. in this interview in 2023. Thing of what I did say, I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> I, I feel like if somebody was going to kidnap my children, they'd probably take their phone off. So it's not, you know, they're not chipped. Yeah. They don't have some yeah, indelible yeah. mark. Yes. And they're probably on a bunch of CCTV cameras anyway. In fact, more than that, they're probably on a bunch of other people's phone cameras yeah. and dash cams. And, you know, there was, a, there was an incident actually near one of my children's schools last year. And the police were asking for the dash cam footage 
from motorists who were driving by at the time. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting aspect. Like, you know, you were talking about Big Brother at the beginning there, David. Yeah. We have this idea about malevolent surveillance being the kind of exclusive activity of governments. We used to get a lot of people back in the Snowden days. Mm-hmm. I remember there was a lot of people had a lot to say about Big Brother. Um, and that used to annoy me because although there are lots of things happening where you can say, oh, Big Brother is is watching. There are so many other things happening where it isn't Big Brother, it isn't centrally controlled, it's just a person videoing someone else or it's some loose ad hoc group of people that have decided that they're going to surveil something. It's so much more decentralized and so much more peer-to-peer than that idea of Big Brother. That's a very industrial era way of looking at things. I think it's a very poor analogy for what we live in. Yeah. Um, I'll give you an example. So you remember, you know, in my lifetime, if I think about two awful terrorist attacks in the USA in my lifetime, the first was the attacks on 9-11. There's only about three or four camera angles. You know, there were a couple of people on the ground with camcorders. There was a news helicopter in the air, but there's only about three or four camera angles. And then uh, 15, 20 years later, we had the Boston Marathon bombings and the police were actually asking people for their phone camera footage to try and identify the suspects. That's where the cameras are. Gosh, yeah. That makes total sense. I mean, I know there's more cameras, but what I find um, gross is the picking up of cameras after something happens. Mm -hmm. There was a terrorist attack in my town, and so I was trying to work out why there were so many helicopters and everything going over my house. And so I went onto Twitter and I put in the hashtag for my town. And the videos that were already online, like within... 20 minutes of it happening of like absolutely graphic just these people's families just it shouldn't be online and it's they've already posted like their first thought is i need to record this and i need to post it online that's just it's so weird now there's a there's a corollary to this yeah and that is something i was looking earlier for something that alvin toffler the sociologist said and i ha- i found a video of him talking about little brother and he was talking about little brother being used to hold big brother to account yeah, yeah. So the power of all these little cameras, there are very obvious negative consequences, like everything from what Anna just described down to just obnoxious videos on Twitter of like, I was on a plane and there was someone else on the plane and they did a thing that I found funny or I didn't like. And here's a video of them <laughs> yeah, yeah. without their permission. Like that is... Oh, yeah. That is the... that I, I, I can't stand that. I think that's terrible. Yeah. But, it, yeah. but it's a sort of... It's a small negative consequence of little brother. But then we have the positive consequences of, okay, if everybody's got a camera, it's very hard to do things in secret. So it's very hard for Big Brother to do things in secret because actually the surveillance that it had exclusive access to, you know, 20, 30 years ago, is now everywhere, even to the point where you see, you know, so everyone's got phone cameras and dash cams, but there is also pressure then for Big Brother to be accountable, to make itself accountable. So, you know, it, it wasn't that long ago that the police didn't have body cams, but now yeah. body cams are everywhere mm-hmm. because people want their... Now, I know there's a lot of, you know, body cameras that seem to have a terrible habit of failing <laughs> at the most important moments. Um, it's funny how they do that. The mere... <laughs> so weird. 
the mere fact that they exist, I think, is because of people's awareness of surveillance and their appetites for the sort of democratization of surveillance. So yeah. I guess my question to you is, look, that actually, as with all forms of technology, there are two very, very different sides for this. So is it bad? Is it good? Or is it just that's oxygen now? That's just the environment, the ecosystem that we operate in. It is funny that you mentioned this, like that little brother is a check on power against big brother, because that is a lot of the ponderings about little brother in like 2010, 2011, 2012, before the Snowden revelations. And that was a lot of stuff I was reading and I had never considered it like that. And then I read similar points, right? Like uh, body cams are a recent innovation. And I don't know where the line is, right? Because we all have cameras, we have been able to prove abuses by the state that we never could have done before. We've been able mm. to prove that cops lie uh, routinely. Uh, we've been able to prove that like people lie and that like people who hold power above others lie, uh, that politicians lie. Those are powerful things. I think those are really powerful, good things, like net good things to know what is happening in our community and the abuses of the people who we give responsibilities to. And at the same time, I also, like you, Anna, like I think that the immediate posting of things after a tragedy is kind of disgusting and I don't know where it comes from. And I can understand, I can understand, like, let's say you have like a rain camera and the police ask you like, hey, there was a crime, you know, on this street. Can you hand over your ring footage? And I understand being a person who says, I want to help. I have a view into something. It might help with an investigation. I completely understand that feeling. I don't understand the feeling of like, let me record tragedy and then let me post it on Twitter. Like that's mm. like a little of corner of the, of the, of human behavior. That's a little too vile for me to fully grasp. Right. But I think that these like surveillance devices that we have in our phones now that let us watch everything. I think the, uh, like uh, to your point, Mark, I think, it's powerful that we can do things with it. It is a shame that the thing we've chosen to do most often is just watch ourselves. Like you were saying, like, what's the point of just like, you know, recording someone on a plane, like kind of freaking out. And I get that there's some sort of like rage bait kind of attraction to that. I, I like, I get that kind of, you know, there's a drama in it, but right. We have this way to rebut the lies of a state. And instead all we do is like, we, like we do it to ourselves, it feels dumb. It feels like a stupid uh, misfire every single day. On the same note of why this is appealing, I also, because we've worked in privacy for a long time, we've tried to convince people that privacy is something that should be there by default, like you were saying, Mark. I kind of want to flip it and then say, like, can privacy be appealing <laughs> in the same way as surveillance? Because I have a lot of trouble ever communicating this. I have a lot of trouble just personally communicating this when we write about it, when we talk about it, when we go to conferences and stuff like that, because surveillance, as I was saying earlier, gives you like these data streams, like it shows you things you didn't know before. And uh, again, we, we like those things. And privacy is actually like the removal of that stuff. Privacy is like, it doesn't show you things. It removes things. It holds the data stream to yourself and doesn't share it. And so I wanted to ask that of both of, of both of you, like, is there a way that privacy is appealing in the same way to people? Like, can we, can, like, will it ever be? A truly big question. Like, how do we make it appealing? 
I think the generations growing up now have a completely different expectation of privacy that we did or that maybe that we still have now in terms of data, definitely. And in terms of tracking, like tracking and, uh, you know, video doorbells and stuff like that is so convenient. I just can't see a way that we're going to go. It's like WhatsApp, you know, in the in the days before WhatsApp, you'd like send a text and you'd wait hours for a reply. And now everybody expects that people are going to almost immediately reply. And certainly like within a day, you'd expect a reply from everybody. And it, the, like the volume of that, and that's just the expectation that someone's going to be there at all times. I just think that that's a, sort of an extension of that, the the videos and the tracking and everything. So I don't know if it is particularly appealing to people like the younger generations growing up. I don't know. I don't I don't know if they feel, if they expect it. I agree with that. I think, so I, I have a sort of visceral mm-hmm. response to this thinking like, well, of course, of course, privacy is a good thing. And of course, it's a thing that we should fight for and a thing that we should want and a thing we should mourn if it's if it's gone. I suspect privacy as we understand it or understood it is gone. I can't think of a really successful attempt to kind of rein back, with the possible exception of GDPR, mm-hmm. just taking the edges off some sorts of data collection. That that definitely made organizations in Europe look twice at the data that they were capturing. But it's so legislation is never ever going to catch up with technology. It just can't. And I think I think Anna's right that the generation that are growing up now, this is just the environment that they operate in. And we probably have a slightly rosy view of how much privacy we had. So had you grown up in the UK in the 1700s, you know, you would probably be working on a farm and you might never leave your village. And most people wouldn't know anything about you, but a very small number of people who shared the village with you would probably know quite a lot about you and you wouldn't have any secrets. And I'm I'm quite sure that their experience of privacy would be very different from ours. I'm not sure in exactly which ways, but it would be different than it was when I was growing up. And there's always a tendency for us to say, well, what I had is normal and therefore that's what we should, like everyone else should have that. And I think there's probably a bit of shifting baseline syndrome going on here where things are just moving in a particular direction and because we are the age that we are, and I'm including you in the age that I am, David, because, <laughs> <laughs> because we're on radio and like we're on audio and no one can see us. Um, you can hear in your voice you're older, Mark. <laughs> That's interesting, actually, though. I hadn't thought that, about that before because... In the olden days, um, 1700s. your neighbours, yeah, when Mark was born, it was uh, your neighbours would have probably known a lot more about you in general than they do now. Like my neighbours don't really know much about me at all. They probably don't even know my surname unless they've seen a letter that's yeah. like landed on their doormat. But there are people that I know, you know, all around the world that know about me because we're connected on social media or whatever. They know a lot more about me, but that would have, you know, so it, it is weird. I said, it is, I hadn't thought about that shift. 
Because we've talked about the 1700s, and because you were talking about <laughs> your last name, Anna, I, I, I'm never going to... your problem with the 1700s? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I'm never going to get the opportunity to tell this story ever again so organically, okay? <laughs> so it, I'm sorry it has to happen, but I have, I have read somewhere that there's a theory that last names became more common in use following a spate of outbreaks of the Black Plague in the 1600s, which also kind of ended around 1666 because of this huge fire in London, and so it just decimated things. However, because the plague was going around and it was killing up to 30% of individual towns, those towns were losing a lot of labor. And so people had to start moving more than ever before to get jobs. And then they would move to a place and they had never encountered someone who had the same name, the same first name as them before. And so we started introducing last names to differentiate between one another. I don't know if that's true, but I read it somewhere as like a theory and I thought it was like really cool. And that's just in my back pocket all the time. And I think that should be used. <laughs> You've just been waiting, just been waiting for that. People, like you said, don't even know your last name today. And I feel the same way. I don't think my neighbors know my last name. And I, I yeah. also have to be honest here. If they did, if they like called me like, they're like, hey, David Reese, I'll be like, what the f Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> How do you know that? But also you'd what? be like, respect my privacy. Yeah, I would like, stop doing that. That's not, a, that's bad. That's a bad thing. Yeah. Um, I agree very much on the whole idea that like, we have this rosy outlook of the privacy we were born with. And then now like it is gone. The privacy that like kids have today or their understanding of what privacy is, is very different. And mm. I also think it's like, I don't know how to make it appealing to them. Right. The big obstacle I always face is that teenagers like targeted ads. They enjoy it. And that is something that I don't understand. That's just something I'm I'm never really going to get. Like, I, I, they can explain it to me a thousand times over. I'm never going to, <laughs> this is great. I'm never going to sympathize with someone who likes ads. Like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> get, like what? What do you mean? What are you talking? Like, every single thing I have bought in my home that isn't like groceries or a necessity is a failure on my part. <laughs> like every <laughs> single time I bought something, it is that a company has swindled me. And I, I oh. enjoy that adversarial nature that I have with companies. And to know that the younger generations in particular do not have that adversarial nature. I'm it's crushes me. I just don't understand. <laughs> like, what do you, they just want to collect your data. <laughs> do you take pride in the, in the boneheaded adverts that you see? Like, I'm the same. I will, I have all the every option to turn off tracking. I have turned off. Yeah, which means I get to feel you know smug about the fact that yeah. Google knows slightly less about yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably still knows yeah. an absolute has an absolute trove of data on me, but it knows slightly less about me than it would otherwise know. But I do get some absolutely boneheaded ads. <laughs> like, yeah. the, whatever the default is, like yeah. all we know about you is that you are in the UK because your IP address is yes is allocated to the UK or something like that. Yeah. And they just get the most appalling generic. There are times <laughs> where I look at those ads and I was like, why don't they show me something more relevant? <laughs> and then I realized why. 
Because you've ruined that for yourself, Mark. <laughs> I do get pride in that. I know exactly what you're talking about. I love actually seeing an ad that's just such a misfire in terms of like, what? Like, whoa, you really don't understand who I am. I've beat the system, man. Yeah, and I feel like I've beat the system. Like, there's particularly, like, I get emails specifically about, I forget which company it is. It's a clothing company. But the emails they send me are only for, like, the women's collection. They just, they are fully on board that, like, David Reese is a woman and he wants to see, like, the new spring dress, like, collection, right? And I'm always, like, it is a weird moment of you're, like, guys, can't you at least get it right? But then also, like, eh, I got you this time, fools. And I do get some joy out of it. That joy is impossible to communicate, you know, <laughs> like you can't say, you can't write a blog like this is what privacy gets you. It gets you just completely off the wall ads. And if you enjoy being who you are, but then being mistaken as like someone in their 70s who like loves carnival cruises, who like watches procedural <laughs> dramas, like it's a very private type of enjoyment. And I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how to make it relate to anyone else. <laughs> That's the answer to your uh, appealing question then. Yes, it can. If you're particularly boneheaded about <laughs> your ads, it can be appealing. In your um, podcast that you did with the team yeah. recently, yeah, yeah. talking about like expectation of privacy and stuff, I thought it was interesting the way she shared with all her friends, that, like they all shared their locations with each other. Yeah. And it yeah. reminded me also of something, I think it was you, Mark, that said that one of the ways that kids that you know have like they they show that they're best friends is to like share passwords and so they're like that's the way they they almost like you're welcome into my gang now let's share our location and let's share passwords it's like i suppose that is better than like when i grew up the thing that was cautioned against to do with your best friends was this i don't know if you folks had this in the uk but like blood brothers yes <laughs> <laughs> I had a genuine I was really worried about yeah. it that someone was going to ask me I was worried too we got so many ad, like the things that we feared the most you know growing up was like being yeah. asked to be a blood brother I guess and also yeah. like and cigarettes <laughs> so you know true. like you better watch yeah. it like these things it's funny both of those things depending on the circumstances could kill you so I guess it was yeah. correct I was just I was just thinking they are both substantially more harmful they're like extraordinarily dangerous now that I think about it they were right they were right okay I gotta hand it to them so both of those things both of those things are a way of making yourself vulnerable mm. aren't they, they like are. giving someone giving someone your password is a way of saying I trust you and I'm I'm happy to be vulnerable with you in a way that I'm not with anybody else. And I think letting somebody know where you are and track you oh. is the same. I can I can see mm. the attraction of doing that. I don't really? think oh, I yeah. would, but I kind of like that's the I kind of see where they're coming from. I do yeah. wonder as well if they understand better than we give them credit for that they are in a trade. So if you look yeah. at the way that young people consume content. So when I was growing up, you know, there were four TV channels and you watched whatever the broadcaster wanted to show you at, you know, seven o'clock in the evening. That was that was what was on. And then obviously now we have all these streaming services and things. But my children are much, much bigger consumers of YouTube than they are of any streaming service. Mm -hmm. mm. And so they 
you know, they aren't consuming TV programs of the same length. Everything on YouTube, there is a person who is the star. You know, it's yeah. it's yeah. somebody, some character, some outlandish, over-the-top character doing something, you know, even playing computer games. Like watching other people play computer games blows my mind. When I realized that children did that habitually for entertainment, like watch other people play computer games, it honestly blew my mind. But that is the world they live in and they, they want to be on social media and they want to be not just consuming content but producing content for each other and they want the dopamine, they want the likes for producing that. And I just wonder if they know much better than we give them credit for that they are in this sharing economy, what Alvin Toffler called prosumers. Mm -hmm. So they are consuming but they're producing as well and the people they're consuming are also prosumers. They're all kind of in this, they're all peers, you know, some are doing better than others, but they're all, they're all peers in the same content sharing milieu. They also don't have the, the con- maybe they're not aware of the consequences. Like kids are mean. I just can't imagine that there's not a, like, especially girls, they're mean. So like passwords, just, I, sometimes I, like, I think back to when I was at school and I went through a phase where I had, don't get sad, guys. But I had a boyfriend and he wasn't very nice to me. And then we broke up. I broke up with him. And he was, he, like, I'm not that sad. I'm not that sad about this. <laughs> you will be when you hear the rest of the story. Okay. He spread vicious rumours about me at school, oh. which weren't true. None of it was true. And he, <laughs> it's no exaggeration to say, turned the whole of the school year against me. I had no friends oh, no. for a period of time. And it was quite sad. But... If I think about what that would be like now with social media and just how much worse that would be now to a child, at least in the olden days, I could escape and I could, in the olden days, I could yeah. go home and you, you're not like constantly on. But, but I mean, it doesn't even now, need social media. Yeah. It's it. They are able to contact each other unless... You intervene. So my children have got certain restrictions on their phones that, you know, at a particular time of night, almost everything on their phone will stop working and their contact list is reduced to basically their parents. But they want to be in contact with each other all the time. And I, I guess I guess I was, I mean, I remember phoning school for like getting home and phoning school friends. Um, oh yeah, and spending a long time on the phone with them. But they, they, are, they are connected to each other, as you say, permanently. And there isn't that air gap that perhaps we had where you, you leave school and then, you know, the bully doesn't follow you home. They don't follow you into your bedroom. They don't have, you know, they're not there when you're having dinner. So I guess it's on us to create those places. But even if you do create that place, it's still going on. People are still talking on their phone, like in the hypothetical bully situation, like other people are still talking on their phones while your child is in their safe space at home, eating dinner with you while their phone is off. It's still all going on. So it doesn't ever leave the child. Whereas, you know, in the nineties that it wasn't going on because everybody was in their respective homes and everybody was like switched off from school. It's tough. I want to return to something that you said there, Mark, and close out the episode because I think there is a finding from all of this and not to get anyone too excited, but I think we've landed on something, which is, which is difficult to do in a podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> Nobody was expecting that. Yeah. This is supposed to be shooting from the hip. Let's um, be honest. 
you were talking about how sharing your passwords and also like doing the blood brother thing is um blood sister you know if that was also happening um is a showing of vulnerability and i started to think that then for young people in particular today they are equating vulnerability which is like sharing their location sharing their password vulnerability as trust and so i wonder if the way they interpret vulnerability to be trust is also why privacy has very little appeal to them because privacy is a sort of shield. Privacy is not being vulnerable. And so maybe we have to completely reconsider the way that we communicate privacy to Generation Z because they're very likely forced to trust people in a way that we never were because they're inundated with misinformation and disinformation. They see how mean they can be to one another, Anna. I think you're absolutely right. They see like what happens if something goes wrong. The uh, school can be turned against them. And so maybe like privacy, the way we interpret it, isn't appealing in any way whatsoever because it is like the opposite of building relationships. And that's just a seed. I could be wrong. But I thought it was kind of exciting. Done. You should, you should definitely end the podcast there. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Say no more. Say no more. <laughs> Don't throw. Yeah. Mark, Anna, thank you again for coming on today's show and for talking about things and for doing like, right, 59 minutes of like, bah, but then 30 seconds of just pure gold <laughs> at the very end. We made it. We cut it at time. It's so good. Uh, thank you again for coming on today. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Thanks again, David. To our listeners, we'll talk to you again most likely in four weeks, not two. Uh, We are not releasing an episode during Thanksgiving week. Uh, That's November 20th, as we're taking a short break. We'll be back in December. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Mauerbytes Labs at mauerbytes.com slash blog. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin MacLeod from Incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from Unminus.com. Today's show has been edited by our podcast consultant, Eric Johnson, at lightningpod.fm. Thank you, folks. <laughs>